Welcome to another episode of Through Another Lens, our sports pop culture podcast primarily focused on documentaries, docu-series and books. Today I'm joined by an author who has written a book on Potter. No, it's not J.K. Rowling, it's George Mallet, and it's not Harry, it's Graham. We'll be discussing George's new book, Potter, Hopcart and the Desk in East London, the story of Ossesoon's European adventure, where under Graham Potter, they came within a whisker of making it to the round of 16 in the Europa League. George, welcome to Through Another Lens. Very smooth, Shabby. Very nice. <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, c- congratulations, Shabby. I saw that you won an award with the SGA. That's a uh, very thank big you, Thank you. So that's a, that's a yeah, thank, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was quite overwhelming. Um, and we've also got with me the London football writer with Capital Football, Dan Evans. Dan, welcome to Through Another Lens. Thanks for having me on again. Yep. Dan, before we started recording, you were telling us how Graham Potter kind of made you fall back in love with football. So it would be interesting to dig into that a bit. So we're recording this on Thursday, a couple of days removed from Chelsea's Champions League win over Dortmund. Arguably, Graham Potter's biggest win as Chelsea boss and perhaps his entire managerial career. So, George, I'm going to start with you. Is Potterball like ready to go now? Is it there? Like, is this the Graham Potter we've all heard so much about? Yeah, I think uh, with Potter at Chelsea, it's kind of like completely uncharted territory. I think like we've seen like what works with Potter, and that's. Um, Brighton, Swansea, Östersunds, uh, and Leeds Beckett University, if you ever watch them. Um, but it's kind of like getting players on his side. And he, he's a br- he's a brilliant man manager, which has j- just has a way of sort of motivating players that really has stood him in massive stead. I think in my book, it's, it's not a huge tactical analysis of the way that Potter sort of brought about his team. It's about how they managed to sort of really get a complete diverse range of personalities and perspectives from all over the world with completely different backgrounds and managed to get them all on the same page. Now, obviously at Chelsea, it's a little bit different. We've got sort of superstars where one of Potter's big selling points at Östersund, and he he said it openly, was he wanted the players, uh, he wanted them to play well so that they got a move to a big club. Um, and if you look at sort of around Europe, you'll see a lot of that Östersund side playing now at, at a decent level. You've got Sam and Godos playing at Brentford, Ken Seema playing at Watford. Um, you've got um, Fuad Bashiru playing in Cyprus in the uh, Europa League um, and a whole host of others. Um, that's a very long-winded way of saying, I don't really know. But yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I would like to think that Potable... Uh, could could work big time in for Chelsea, but will he receive the the time to find out? I'm not so sure, but I really do hope so. So I'm gonna go back a bit. That how did this idea to you know follow Graham Potter and Ossesoons like how did that idea really come about? Yeah, well, um, so sort of going back to ages, I, I think I need to sort of provide a bit of context. I'm a I'm a York fan. Um, a York City fan uh, so I've grown up watching them in the old Division 3 or more recently mostly in the Conference or Conference North when it got really bad um, but 
Graham Potter, when I went to my first ever York match, which was a 3-0 loss to Exeter City, Graham Potter was a blonde, a guy with a big blonde mop who played left back and obviously probably didn't play that well because we lost 3-0. Um, but he was a guy who played sort of 100 games for York over a three-year period. It was probably the team that he played the most for. He didn't have a really long, distinguished playing career. He had a few games for Southampton in the Premier League, but he was generally sort of sort of League One and League Two or the old Division Two and Division Three. Uh, so there was this sort of York fans grew to knew, know him a little bit. Um, and then um, sort of after he left, York papers often sort of, because it's a smaller club, they always report on, you know, the boys who do well and go and play for bigger teams. So they always used to, we used to get the local paper, I'd read it, it was the York Press. And on the back, there'd always be um, something or occasionally once a year, there'd be something about something that Potter's doing. So the first year it was uh, Graham Potter's taken over as a, a Swedish fourth division side called Östersunds. And I probably didn't even read it. It was probably a, a line or two. And then steadily these, these articles started getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where when Östersunds got promoted to the Swedish Premier League, I think it was the whole back page of the York press. Um, and at the time, I used to find that a little bit annoying because I was like, "No, they got they should they should be talking about York City, not Östersunds." Uh, but they stead they steadily sort of kept on rising, and it kind of piqued our interest. So it got to the point where they were playing in the, the top division, and it also coincided with a time where I was in London, and um, York had dropped out of the National League, which is the you know non-regionalised, the last non-regionalised league. So they dropped down to the National League North. So I could no longer go and see York. Um, and to be honest, it was a big part of my life at the time. I couldn't, and I, I, it suddenly completely evaporated. So, and this this also coincided, coincided with a period of my life where I was sort of maybe a bit disillusioned with with my job, I, I used to work as an insurance broker and did for sort of six or seven years. And I just, you know, I wasn't really loving it. And I was kind of just looking for this escape. And what we do is we'd always, you know, we'd go to the pub on a Thursday and I had a good friend of mine who's called James. I'd often see him and I'd sort of moan. And then we started talking about this, this Ersterson's and we sort of gradually the conversations got sort of more and more interested. We started looking for the scores and then, and then sometime later, they won the Swedish Cup. Um, and I think I, I, I saw that when I was, uh, I'd just actually broken my leg and I was sitting in King's Cross and I saw on my Twitter, Ustersunds have won the Swedish Cup. And then we realised, oh, they go to the Europa League. So basically it just started snowballing and snowballing to the point where we thought, actually, maybe we should go and see these guys. So we sort of made an agreement that we would and, Fortunately, they were in a pretty decent group when they eventually qualified. Um, they had to go through a lot of qualifying rounds. They played in Luxembourg. Well, their first round was against Galatasaray. Um, so obviously you think that the adventure is going to completely end just as it starts because Galatasaray are obviously, I think they've got to a Champions League semi-final. Um, they've obviously, I think they've won the most amount of um, Turkish titles. Um, it that's correct in the book. They might not have in my head, but 
the book says whether they did or not um but yeah so um this started snowballing massively um and they started getting a bit of attention uh, and then we sort of went absolutely loved it and sort of continued the journey following them meeting i mean Ursusun's for a bit of context is a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in sweden um so if you if you're based in um london and you think inverness is far away because it is it's miles away well then double that again and that's where Östersunds are but the difference is in london you've got cities along the way you've got manchester edinburgh aberdeen you've got all these reasonably big places but in sweden it's all basically located in the south of the country with stockholm so it is this it's called the winter city or the winterstaden and it's um just a, a town in the complete middle of nowhere um and yeah and i i realized that i've completely gone off on the, you said how we got into it but um the, the reason i was saying that is because it's a tiny town so that when you go to your first match there aren't many people uh, it's not a massive community so you sort of start to see the same faces and then you get a sort of reputation as the english people or those two sort of strange short english blokes uh, and conversations go from one to the other and then before you know it you actually feel part of the community um so yeah that's how it's kind of all snowballed and how it all started um and uh, yeah it was just a distraction from from our jobs at the time uh but what we didn't really realize or i didn't realize personally was how much meaning it was going to i was going to have along the way i was you were kind of searching for this elixir which you didn't really know what it was but you uh, at the end of the book you kind of do get that moment where it just kind of all makes sense and that's kind of the moment where they go to the emirates and they go 2-0 up uh, they've lost the first leg 3-0 and for a brief fleeting second it looks uh, I think they hit the bar it looks like they're going to knock out Arsenal and ultimately it comes to absolutely nothing they they, they lose but for that brief moment where Ken Sima scores the second and we're in sort of utter delirium it's like it's moments that only football can ever sort of bring you um so yeah, it's um that's kind of how we got into it and and the sort of joy that it brought along the way. Was was that moment at the Emirates when you realized that you can't be an insurance broker anymore? Like was that the moment you're like I need to leave? <laughs> uh I think writing this book was the moment where I realized I can't be an insurance broker any longer. Uh it was just the process of so this is this is like a massive labor of like love i look at this book as the thing that kind of ultimately for context i now work for a, a production company and i'm an, a researcher for them but it's the thing that ultimately made me want to change my career because it's just the ability the, the the privilege that you get to like tell these stories i mean yeah in moments like that it makes you think that i love this so much I, i've got such a passion for this that you don't you, you you don't get lucky enough to be passionate about things or that passionate about things that often and i'm sure you'll both agree that when you're sort of passionate about something you're going to be generally a, a lot better at it so yeah 
probably can I probably didn't immediately realize it when Ken Seema scored it but yeah it was definitely the start of a journey what were some of the interesting some of the other interesting characters and anecdotes you can remember on this journey like which was your favorite place to visit in this entire odyssey yeah so uh what you, what you kind of find in the book is that i go we go to places and then you discover so there's a lot of sort of tangents and stories along the way so probably the best example is when we went to bilbao and uh we were we met these swedish guys and we were looking or the swedish people and we were looking for um a bar late at night and there's nothing really open and we go down this sort of street and then we see this sort of shining light and there's one bar with a few sort of older guys outside it so we get there and then it's called it's called the Kendall bar and we're like what well, Kendall is in Howard Kendall bar so we go in and there's a there's a cocktail there bearing his name and there's a picture of him above the bar so we sort of we're like well what's the link with Bilbao and Howard Kendall and then it got us into speaking to the people outside um about how Howard Kendall in sort of 1984 when he was manager or 1985 in mid 80s let's call it um they just won he just uh won the league twice in uh three league uh, in three years for Everton uh, he beaten that famous Liverpool side to the title and he he completely revolutionized um the Everton side and it's probably one of Everton fans will see it as one of their sort of fondest teams because it was so successful they won the European Cup winners cup um but then Heisel obviously happened um literally days after they won the European Cup winners cup which meant that European teams were banned from Europe uh, English teams were banned from Europe yeah European teams being banned from Europe would be quite a big problem but yeah it it meant that he's his team which he Howard Kendall regarded as this team that he always said his main ambition was to win the European Cup he he talks about it with with such like fervor and passion and you can see it you can see him talking 20 30 years about the sort of heartache that he couldn't take that Everton team to um to Europe and try and win the European Cup but anyway he 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 wants to try and win it so he goes and um you discover the story of how he got the bill bow job in the first place so bill bow rang up um rang up liverpool they rang up the liverpool chairman and they said um can um uh can we have your manager and i think it might have been bill shankly at the time or whoever it was at the time and they and then he says no 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 you, um he's not going anywhere but um but the everton manager um why, why don't you give him a ring as in, and obviously that's quite sneaky for a liverpool chairman to uh, try and get the best everton manager probably in their history to leave to go to spain so he does and they end up meeting in bilbao and then they have this admittedly it's only 18 months um where he, um howard kendall's at bilbao but he creates such a sort of relationship with the fans that we were speaking to outside that bar that he still remembered 30 40 years on i mean we these are these are sort of guys in their mid 60s or late 50s whose their first memories will be watching that howard kendall team um for bill bow and they've got that affection and then there's the stories that we hear about him 
as manager of Bilbao along the way. Stories that are basically just based in sort of friendship and just being fundamentally sort of good people um, and how sort of an industrial town in northern Spain, when Howard Kendall can't even speak the language, he gets this unlikely partnership, which admittedly doesn't bear fruit on the football pitch so much. He leaves after um, just over a year. But it's sort of the relationships and the legacy that he leaves behind, which sort of we'd only we'd only ever find out about. Well, obviously, I can read books and I'd have found it out separately. But it was because we went to that random bar that was had that shining light and had those conversations with the locals. Dan, I'm going to come to you about when Potter arrived at Swansea. What was the reaction when he arrived, you know, can you just take me back a bit to that? What did the fan base think? What did you think? And a bit of what was that season like with him? So he came in the summer of 2018 and Swansea just been relegated from the Premier League. And the last few years in the Premier League, there were some sort of great escape kind of seasons. But overall, it was quite miserable. Like the football was pretty bad. There was a lot of players not contributing a lot. And those were the players that Potter kind of came in and had to deal with, get rid of, or either try and like motivate to get back in the team. He completely sort of revolutionised how the team was playing, back to sort of this idea of like a Swansea way, which Roberto Martinez had started about 10 years before. Um, and he was really, uh, at the start there was problems. I think the big squad turnover meant that it took longer than people would have liked. You look at the championship now, it's the teams that get relegated from the Premier League that are at the top of the table because of the parachute payments. The Swansea didn't really use those to invest in the squad. They just kind of used them to serve, uh, service the debt that had been accrued in the Premier League. Um, up until Christmas time, it, it wasn't particularly spectacular. It, you could see that he was trying to sort of integrate these new ideas, trying to get players who were a bit uncomfortable playing out from the back or keeping hold of possession for like 60, 65% of the game. Um they didn't look right until sort of the springtime. And then there was that really memorable game against Man City in the FA Cup where Swansea went 2-0 up, scored an incredible goal, like starting with the goalkeeper, about 10 passes maybe, and they ripped Man City apart. And this was, I think that was the year that Man City got 100 points or the season after that. So they, they won the Premier League that year. And that game was like, wow, this guy is clearly an incredible coach. I'm sure Guardiola said some amazing things about him afterwards and then from there on out until the end of the season we played really good stuff like even if we were losing games we were still passing teams off the park and it, it kind of became sort of it came clear and clearer that we need to do something to hold on to this guy or someone else is going to take him soon enough and then I think it was about a week after the season ended Brighton came in and yeah it was it was pretty hard to take really but that year was incredible, just how the team progressed, just how he got you feeling connected again to the club after such a difficult three or four years. So, yeah, even though he left in sort of a, a difficult way, a way that you, you don't really want a manager to leave, I still felt quite fond towards him and continued sort of watching his journey at Brighton and now at Chelsea, always wanting him to do the best. I think like George says, he's a very likeable guy. He's, he's, very, he's very normal. I think you look at a lot of coaches and you think, like, I wouldn't really want to spend any time with you guys like Mourinho and Conte. They just seem so over the top, so 
out of touch with reality. Whereas Potter just seems like a very normal guy put in an extraordinary situation. I think that's maybe why he's had some problems at the start at Chelsea, but hopefully this week has turned things around and who knows where it goes from here. I, one one thing I'd say, Dan, is I don't know if you, you sort of saw it at Swansea, but definitely like a blueprint of Östersunds was they played like they used to take so many risks, like they but they would keep playing that ball. They they would they played free flowing football, but they would yeah just keep taking those chances, and occasionally that would mean that they'd lose when maybe they shouldn't. But they'd also like play incredible football, and when. When teams, I think this is why so far it hasn't really worked at Chelsea, is because they don't have that confidence. But Potter at Ersterson's and managed to instill like this, we'll give it a go, like this mentality, we'll we'll give it a go, and keep trying. Like if if it doesn't pay off, don't worry, just try it again. And that was clear. That that's clear so many times in Ersterson's run, sort of to the last thirty-two of the Europa League, um, and I think. It sounds like maybe it was similar a little bit at Swansea. Um, but yeah, I think if that ever happens at Chelsea, that'll be a really exciting time for them. But it's a completely... That, that's why I think you can't really tell how he'll do because it's and don't, it's a challenge that he hasn't faced. And don't get me wrong, he's like negotiated far more difficult challenges than this. Like in terms of, you know, playing... When, when he first started playing at Östersund's, he conducted training outside and it was so cold that um, icicles formed on people's eyebrows and talks about how a ball would f- flick past a, an eyebrow and then take the eyebrow with it. So he had to start uh, training indoors and there's the whole sort of story about his uh, culture academy. I don't know if you've heard about this at all, but but they basically made the players, um, they wanted to get them out of their comfort zone. Obviously, it isn't something that he's done since, and it was kind of partly down to the chairman as well. But they got them to like do massive. They got them to perform Black Swan as a team. Uh, they got them to do like rapping, uh, like proper rapping performances with like two hundred people watching, and like sing and all this stuff. Basically, they got them to be really like. I'd hate it. I'd absolutely hate it. But like just step outside their comfort zone so often and maybe maybe they could do that at Chelsea actually they could um, try and force them to do some of this stuff but it probably doesn't work when you're getting paid 200 grand a week or whatever but yeah I think he is amazing at sort of taking the the pressure off the players I think he creates this sort of we're all in this together atmosphere and I think like you say about doing the productions of Swan Lake and all that sort of thing he hasn't brought it over to the UK because I think that Managing Championship Premier League players is just completely different to sort of the fourth division of Swedish football, right? Um, you can't really get the same buy-in from the players with that sort of thing. But I do think he he is incredible creating these atmospheres that players want to be in. I think if he gets enough time at Chelsea, we'll see that now. I think you've seen a lot of players come out and say, like, um, you, like we want to play for this coach. It's just difficult. I think with a squad that big, you've got to leave so many guys out every week. but. I don't know. I, I I do think he'll come good eventually. They've just got to give it enough time, which Chelsea traditionally don't really do. I want to get to this point, which I think both of you brought up, about the way even at Ossessons and at Swansea, he kind of brought the club, he brought the community together. He had everyone invested with what's happening in the team. So I kind of want to understand 
how does he go about doing that? Dan, I'm going to start with you about how did he bring everyone together at Swansea? I think it's because he just talks about football in quite a simple way. I think some of the big Chelsea writers haven't really liked that in his first few months there. Like they want sort of the, the big quotes to come from press conferences. They want him to say sort of outlandish things so it makes good copy. Um, but Swansea, what was great was that he sort of connected with the local community. He got this idea of how the fans wanted the team to play. And he said, like, you've, you've got to buy into it as well. You, you can't expect us to be up the top of the league all season with a team that's basically made up of academy players, made up of guys who weren't playing at all in the Premier League, but have now been like sort of central to how the team wants to play. Um, so I think he, he created sort of a narrative around the team that was really easy to buy into. I think he kind of did similar at Brighton where he goes there and it's quite obvious that he's got to change the style of play from how it was with Chris Hutton, where they were doing quite well in the Premier League, but playing a sort of reactive defensive style. And it came over time. I think he did get quite a lot of patience at Brighton at the start. And then I think we saw in his last season, the start of the current season when he started really well, that these things pay off over time. And I think you've got to be able to see that progression to buy into the story as well. And I think, again, like with Chelsea, we just haven't had enough time yet. Yeah. I think what's... um... I know that Potter's got a much bigger team around him, but I mean, I think fundamentally uh, it's testament to all the players playing in the top leagues around Europe that play, used to play for Östersunds that he is a ridiculously good like talent identifier. He has obviously got a real skill in spotting ability in that in those players. And often players that sort of maybe have been rejected from others. Obviously, that's difficult at Chelsea. How do, How do you do that when... Not too many of those have been rejected. Although saying that, Koulibaly, when he was 17 or 18, got released by, is it Lenz or Lens, I'm sorry. Um, so he, he he's kind of had that journey, but obviously he's since played nine seasons at Napoli in the Champions League. But um, the, So he's, he's, a, he's a great talent identifier. He's obviously a great motivator. You can kind of see it in the way that um, Kai Havertz talked about him the other day, saying... Yeah, as you said, Dan, we really want to play for him. We think, I think he said there's there's hundreds of coaches that think that they're as good as him, but they're not, and he's our manager, which is a really nice thing for them to say. Um, so he's the motivator, he's the talent identifier, and then um, eventually I hope that we will see it at Chelsea, but he does have a pretty sort of relatively rigid philosophy. Um, he likes his teams to play, as you say, should be potable he likes them to play free-flowing uh yeah the play with freedom essentially and they haven't been able to do that when you're on such a sort of losing streak uh, but he did that at Östersunds and then hopefully if he's given time he'll be able to do that at Chelsea too you know Josh the way you've described uh Östersunds, the town itself in your book it kind of reminded me of um have you seen the girl with the dragon tattoo you know the Swedish town he is in like that's how I'm kind of imagining this place to be and so I'm just trying to imagine how he kind of brought everyone together in this cold frigid town uh, which is quite interesting just with Östersunds they've kind of got an, another dynamic they're a club which has only existed since 1996 they're sort of an amalgamation of four different clubs uh, and also they, they have never ever ever played at this level so can you imagine a town which 
has is a hundred thousand. You're completely isolated from everyone, and then suddenly you go on this ridiculously incredible adventure. I mean, that is that is so exciting, um, and I think you could see it um, in their fans across Europe. I'm gonna come to you at this point, which you brought up at the start of the uh, podcast, where you said that he kind of helped every player kind of improve and like allowing them to take the next step in their career, right? Like the next progression and how he can't do that at Chelsea now. In some ways, isn't that the case for Potter himself, right? Like he's always been moving up and, you know, trying to make the most out of just minimal resources. But here he has everything at his disposal. Um, And I guess that's where you have kind of some of the naysayers coming in and saying, is he built for this type of environment, you know? Can he manage a big club where winning isn't, you know, like an achievement really, like it's required, like it's the norm, especially at a club like Chelsea, which is where he's like the most trust the process manager in the least trust the process club, right? Like it just, it doesn't feel like the right fit. I probably agree with you. And well, I definitely agree with you in that he's the most trust the process in the least trust process environment. But yeah, I'm not going to lie, when he was announced as a Chelsea manager, that did kind of scare me a little bit. I was like, that is not the club. I know, you, like, get, get, but saying that, what club is? Like, what, the next club that he would have moved to, maybe Spurs would have given him a bit of time, but United aren't going to. I'm not saying the City job was anywhere near available. Arsenal, like, Chelsea, like, Chelsea was probably the only avenue for him at the, at the time. Can you reject the Chelsea job realistically? It's hard to know as well because this is this is a sort of slightly different Chelsea. Obviously, new ownership. It, they were kind of quite ruthless with Tuchel, you feel, in the summer. But was that just more of a personality thing? Because I think they have sort of stuck by Potter in recent weeks when Abramovich definitely would have pulled the plug, right? Abramovich would have got rid of him, called up Gus Hiddink and been like, can you come and sort this out for the rest of the season? Whereas it, it seems quite promising, but I think that Dortmund win this week has helped him a lot. Like I think that surely gets him to the end. Well, hopefully gets him to the end of the season at least. And then he's got a bit more time, hopefully get rid of some of those players. And then the squad's easier to mould and work with going forward. Yeah, definitely. Well, fingers crossed. I just don't <laughs> want him to get just to the end of the season. <laughs> we'll probably know in about April, basically, whether he's going to be there in September, don't we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. When Dan, when you saw him at Swansea, did you see him going to the very top? Did you think that yeah, this is a top six Premier League manager who can, you know, fight for Champions Leagues? Like he is that caliber. I think it's tough to say. I I think I could definitely see him moving up to the Premier League, but it's so rare that top six teams take managers from within the Premier League. I think this Potter sort of experiment with Chelsea is a big deal for guys like Thomas Frank, like Deserby now at Brighton. Like, do these guys now get a chance with Spurs or Man United or Arsenal when those jobs come up? Or are they going to just keep going back to the same sort of big name guys? They're just on the roundabout like Conte and Mourinho. Um, so but back at Swansea, I, I don't know, when you're in the championship, you're, you're never really thinking any of the managers or any of the players are going to end up at Champions League level teams because... It just feels a mile mile away. Like I remember going to Wigan on a Tuesday night in October or something. And we drew nil-nil. We nearly lost because we'd been playing out from the back. We gave the ball away in like the last five minutes. I think Will Grigg 
hit the post rather than find the back of the net. And at that point, you're not thinking, wow, this guy is definitely going to manage in the Champions League one day. You're thinking, God, he's really got to stop us playing out from the back like that. We need to sort of hang on for these points, start moving up the table. But he definitely had something from the start. He had something that was different to most of the other managers we've had. And let's say if, hypothetically, Chelsea get rid of him end of the season, what lies ahead? Is it back to like a club like Brighton in the Premier League? Does he move abroad? Uh, does he wait out for the England job? Like, where does the trajectory take him next if this is the end of his Chelsea career? I, I, I think if he got sacked by Chelsea, there's because there's a lot of politics in the England job, isn't there? And I can't see him getting sacked by Chelsea and his next job being the England job, personally. But, um, yeah, I, I think he's even... He, he might come out of the Chelsea job with a little bit of credit because I think a lot of people do think that if you've got a 30, is it 35 or 36 man squad? I mean, that's like 15, 15 more than most Premier League teams. I mean, and we're not just even talking about like a 36 man squad with a load of teenagers in it. We're talking about a 36 man squad with, you know, seven or eight world-class wingers or or people that have been bought and perceived to be you know world-class wingers like I I think that he could probably go to a a decent a decent level club whether he'll be given that opportunity in England I'd like to think so but I'm not sure there are too many clubs that are as sort of progressive thinking as Brighton um and probably as Swansea um Swansea and Ersterson's actually had a link I don't know if you know, you know that Dan that's kind of how Potter originally got the job because um, Swansea used to play friendlies against Ursusons and they had um, can't remember the name of the guy but basically uh, someone pretty high, one of the coaches at Swansea recommended was it Graham Jones Graham Jones there you go yeah yeah he recommended Potter to Ursusons yeah it's quite fun how that sort of story all links together right where someone at Swansea recommends Potter to Osterson then Potter ends up coming back from Osterson to Swansea it would have been nice if he just stayed at Swansea forever then and he could have had like a Potter dynasty. But, yeah. you know, that's not football, <laughs> is it? Well, the, the weird... <laughs> yeah, it's it's bizarre. But there's also like his assistant manager that he gets, who's also still his assistant manager now, is Billy Reid. And Billy Reid had just spent seven years as a manager of Hamilton Academicals. He'd taken them to the Scottish Premier League. Admittedly, they they dropped out since. But... This is a guy who was a manager who who took the step down to then go and become an assistant manager in Ustersons. Like it's yeah, weird how it works out. It's mad. But can you imagine the, the I think that's that shows a lot about Potter and the way that he could have sold the project alongside the chairman to Billy Reed and to, to the others that joined him eventually. Um yeah. And you mentioned the chairman there, Daniel Kinberg. I know he actually got sent to prison a few years ago, didn't he, for financial crimes or funneling money into the club. Do you think that sort of impacts the story in your mind or can you detach that from the amazing run in the Europa League or that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, obviously, Östersen since, of, uh, they're now not, they play in the Super Eta and they don't play in the top league in, in Sweden any longer. Um, they almost got relegated from it last year. They just won in a relegation playoff. Um, 
some of the players do have sort of reasonably sad stories afterwards. Uh, I kind of talk about it in my epilogue. And obviously, Daniel Kimberg, there's a lot of controversy associated with him. But I don't really see... Yeah, I, it doesn't take it away for it for me because I believe I kind of feel that that club's more about, you know, the fans that we saw along the way, the players that made up that journey and, and Potter himself. Um, and yeah, okay, maybe it was enabled by um, a few dodgy things along the way, potentially, um, which maybe, I, yeah, maybe I need to investigate further. Um, but yeah, you could probably make a very long epilogue on what's happened to us since since. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it's not with Graham Potter, so it's not the scope of my book. It feels like he'll fit right into the Chelsea gig then, hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up, we're going to move to our consumption corner. We're going we're going to hear recommendations for what to hear, what, what to listen to, what to watch, what to read. Uh, Dan, I'm going to start with you. What have you got for us? So a lot of my read, well, I obviously read football stuff. I listen to podcasts and stuff. But I like to sort of disconnect from sport when I'm watching series or films. And I love going to the cinema. And Cocaine Bear came out what, a couple of weeks ago. And just the name made you want to go and watch it just to see if it's possibly as bad as what the title suggests it is. So I went last week. And I was kind of expecting something, something like Ted, maybe, where like this bear sort of be- becomes uh, human-like. But it's not. It's just this horrible, like horror film, where the bear just gets really angry. I guess because he's on cocaine, like he just gets really angry, and it, it's not bad enough to be like legendary, like Sharknado or something. It's just, it's just meh. It's really disappointing. But you, you should go and see it just because of what it is, you know, just because it's strange and a bit different. So, so it isn't so bad that it's good. It isn't even that bad. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it can't qualify as that. It, it, it's a bit too good to be that bad, <laughs> but you should see it anyway. Yeah. I think, I think seeing it in the theaters would be the move to see that. Um, George, what about you? Um, yeah, you asked me a bit earlier, so I actually had a think. And uh, w- one thing that is, it's not it's not really a sports doc, but it was a doc that I watched reasonably recently, which really sort of had an impact on me. And that is, um, it's called The Last Mountain. I think it's on the BBC at the moment, but it's basically the story of um, a mother and son who 20 years apart, um, I'm not sure whether I should tell you because I don't know whether it spoils the doc, but basically it's a climbing documentary um with the most incredible access that you'll ever see in a dock you will see scenes in it where you're like how was the camera there at that point in time and if you watch it it will make sense and the reason i'm not saying is because i don't want to spoil it but it's basically about um it's about um a, a famous climber who i think was the first british woman to climb everest and she she died and it's about her son who um, is taking those next steps or trying to follow in her footsteps. And yeah, you, you if you ever watch it, you see the access that the, the, the documentary maker has got and it is, it's ridiculous. Um, it's harrowing, it's sad, but yeah, it's a really worthwhile watch. 
even though I haven't really told you much about what it is. That's such a contrast from Cocaine Bear to this really <laughs> intense documentary. I love the way it's been So I recently started reading uh, The Glory Game by Hunter Davies. Just been hearing a lot about it. It's written in, I think, it's covering, I think, Tottenham's 72 season, where this journalist uh, kind of spent the whole year with the team, traveling with them, had all access. It's kind of like all or nothing in the 70s. Not a TV show, but a book. Uh, and it's like it, people say, like it, you know, it changed journalism and like kind of revolutionized the whole game. Um, so yeah, started it about 20 pages in, and maybe a future somewhere down the line would actually like to do an episode on that um, because it's considered one of those great legendary football books. So maybe we can see if it holds up all this time later. But that brings us to the end of this episode. George, Dan, Thank you so much for joining me on Through Another Lens. Uh, This was a great chat and hopefully Potter continues for some more time and maybe, George, you can do a sequel to your book. Yeah, Viva Potter. Thanks a lot, Shubi. Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Really enjoyed that. (laughs) Cheers. Thank you, guys.